Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see you. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. I honestly expected for less people to be in the room because I know spring break is this week. So I thought a bunch of people would be out and be gone. And uh, we had a really great turnout at nine o'clock and great turnout here at 1045. So welcome. Glad you're in the room. Good to see you. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Maybe you are already at your destination for spring break at the mountains or the beach. We all here are so happy for you. But thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're joining us as well. We are wrapping up our series, Jesus is Greater, and today we're gonna talk about Jesus is a greater king. I'm gonna give you the outline up front. We're gonna talk about palm branches and paradigm shifts, crocs and popcorn, slaughtering pigs, rebellions, war, adultery, and murder. Think more Hallmark, less HBO. Right? And then we're going to talk about Jesus with paradoxes and contradictions. Okay? If you don't like that, we're going to talk about Jesus, David, Jesus. All right? Little Oreo cookie for y'all. Uh, this begins Holy Week, and our text is Mark 11, 1 through 11. And if you are able and willing, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt, a, a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, which is a good question if anybody comes onto your property to steal your donkey, say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. The word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. Father, I pray that you would, by your power of your Holy Spirit, make your word alive to us and make us good receivers of your truth. Speak to us now as only you can, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this begins Holy Week, culminating in Easter Sunday next week, and working backwards, we have Good Friday, uh, the crucifixion. Uh, the death of Jesus, and then Maundy Thursday, which is the institution of the Lord's Supper and Jesus' mock trial when he gets this like a fake trial uh, that they go into. And then here we are with Palm Sunday, where we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry, as it's called, into Jerusalem. Jesus had gone into Jerusalem uh, many times before during his ministry. He cleared the temple tables and turned them over uh, two times, actually, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry. And this time, he is going into Jerusalem uh, the week of his crucifixion. So he goes, and the people uh, take off their cloaks. They take off their cloaks, their outer robes, and they lay them on the ground as he told his two disciples to get the donkey 
and they put cloaks on the donkey and he's going to ride into Jerusalem and they put cloaks on the ground. It would remind people of 2 Kings chapter nine when Jehu was going to be inaugurated king and they took off their cloaks and they put them on a road so that Jehu could ride on the cloaks. And then they took palm branches and they waved them and they put them on the ground also as a symbol of victory as a symbol of power and honor, and they laid them down, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and as he is riding, a large crowd gathers, and they shout, they begin to shout, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna literally means save us, rescue us. So they're shouting around Jesus, save us and rescue us. Now, we often come to this passage and we might think like eternal salvation and uh, freedom from sin and things like that. That's not what they had in mind. Okay, so a different kind of save, a different kind of rescue. And then they say, they quote these passages, blessed is the coming kingdom. So there's somehow in their mindset this expectation that Jesus is bringing some type of kingdom and it's connected to David, of our father David, save us, save us. By the highest heaven, rescue us. Don't you think it's interesting that this crowd that gathered around Jesus shouting praise and pleading with him to come and intervene on their behalf to save them from their oppressors, not just a few days later would be the same crowd that gathered around him and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. How do we get from save us, save us, to crucify him, crucify him. What were the people not able to do? What information could they not take in? What could they not see? What could they not change? And here's what I would like to say this morning. They couldn't make the paradigm shift. They couldn't make the paradigm shift that Jesus was inviting them to. Paradigm shifts are necessary for our maturity process. We all go through paradigm shifts. We all have to keep going through paradigm shifts for our maturity process. Thomas Kuhn, 20th century physicist and philosopher of science, is credited with this phrase, paradigm shift. It gets thrown around a lot, so I'm going to define it like this. A paradigm shift is defined as an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. When the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. And one of the challenges with paradigm shifts is that some people don't go through paradigm shifts, they go through paradigm shatters. They're like, everything I ever heard was totally false. Everything I ever learned was a lie. Everything I ever thought was totally bogus. And then they, you know, stereotypical uh, phrase, they cast out the baby with the bathwater. And that's not a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is actually not, I'm gonna exclude everything that was former. It is, I'm gonna transcend and include. I'm gonna continue to grow and rise above, but I'm gonna include, there was good things there. There were necessary things there. I'm grateful for those things there. I'm not resenting those things there or those people. I'm bringing them along. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He's saying, we're not just casting out the Old Testament. We're not just done with that. We're bringing the good things along along with us as we're building and continue to expand. We all have to go through necessary paradigm shifts. Just think about it. As we're growing up, toddlers have to go through paradigm shifts. We, we have to change the mindset that when someone takes our to- toy, we can hit them 
and we can bite them. And when we don't get what we want at the store, we can throw ourselves on the ground and flail. Some of us still have yet to make those paradigm shifts. Right, we have to go through the paradigm shifts when it comes to Crocs, at least I did, to this vow of like, I will never buy or own a pair of Crocs to the paradigm shift of like, I've got more than one pair. And like, which kid took my Crocs today? I need those things. And you wear them, not just to Walmart. Man, that got more at nine o'clock, I'm just saying. <laughs> we have to make paradigm shifts about like when we get to a certain age, like we can't eat the same snacks that we did without being conscientious about it. Now we have to snack on things like popcorn, which is really just salty air. Like you keep eating and you never get enough, right? But on, on other bigger, larger scales, we have to make significant paradigm shifts, even throughout history, like the scientific theory with the earth at the center of the universe to the paradigm shift of the sun at the center of the universe. When we travel to a different country with a different culture, they speak a different language, they do things a different way and it seems weird and it seems odd and they have a different paradigm and maybe we thought a certain thing about them but now we have to make a paradigm shift to try to be able to understand them. Conversion to Christianity is a paradigm shift at its core. We are no longer at the front and center of our own story, but as we just sang, all this ego, all this self-promotion, all this self-protection and preservation goes to lay down and goes to die, and no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And we lay down our ego so that something true and better and beautiful can be birthed within us. That's what conversion is, and something can start to bear fruit. It's a paradigm shift. It's hard. These are difficult things. When you get married, when you have kids, when you have more than one kid, when you have two kids to three kids, you're not man to man, you're doing zone. It's paradigm shifts, right? These are difficult things. Thomas Kuhn actually said, there are a few ways that our paradigm uh, can actually shift and that's through contradiction and paradoxes. So things that come into our life that oh, I, I haven't heard it like that before or maybe that feels wrong or that doesn't, that doesn't agree with what everything I ever learned and maybe we gotta investigate that or there's a paradox. How can this be true if that? How can that be true if this? And how did these, this crowd around Jesus, how could they not make this jump from here is the one who is sent and promised and we were Hosanna, Hosanna, save us to crucify him, crucify him. They were so locked in this paradigm. In order to understand a little bit, before we're too hard on them, <laughs> in order to understand a little bit about them, we have to understand what kind of expectations they had in the water, in the culture, in the conversations at that time. And some of the messianic expectations. So Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Right, and I know for some people that's a paradigm shift. Like, what? Like, it's not? No, it's not Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It's a, it means Messiah. It means king. Like, promised king from the line of David. Jesus promised king from the line of David. These expectations were swirling in the culture at the time. Listen to this. We know that Israel had basically a, a, a nation and, a, and, and had a power of biblical history for a very brief time. And then the Assyrians came and took them over because their kings followed idol worship and led their people in idol worship and they forfeited the, that privilege of being the, the, the center of God's new humanity. And then the Babylonians came and took them over and then the Greeks ruled and then you have the Romans rule. And so about 180 BC, about 180 BC, it's the height of Greek Hellenistic power ruled by the Seleucids. And what happened was one day they decided that we will crush the Jews 
So they, they, one ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, he went into Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and according to the prophecy in the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation, he took a pig, which was known as unclean to the Jewish people, and he went into the Holy of Holies, and on the altar, he slaughtered a pig, and the pig's blood ran down on the altar of the Holy of Holies. It's the greatest desecration that they could imagine. Well, there was a priestly Jewish family who heard about this and they thought, no, no way we're doing this. No way we're having this. They were known as the Maccabeans or the Maccabeus family. And the father's name was Mattathias Maccabeus. How's that for a name? Oh, hey, Matt. No, no, no. It's Mattathias. And he had a son, Judas Maccabeus. And they started a revolt. So about 167 to 160 BC, the Maccabean revolt took place. And finally, about 160, they make their way into Jerusalem, into the temple. And Judas Maccabeus tears down all the Greek statues and all the Greek idols. And he cleanses the temple and restores proper worship for the people of God. That's why the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. It's the cleansing and restoration of the second temple and there's proper worship and there's a theocracy now for a hundred years and the Maccabean uprising had this theology to undergird it. God gave us muscles and a sword. Use them and he will bless them. We take power by any means necessary. For a hundred years, there's this restoration of a theocracy until 63 BC, Pompeii and the Roman Empire crushed them once again. And so now there's these conversations. When is Messiah gonna come? And maybe the time is getting near because the Maccabean revolt was only 60 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, and we had proper worship. When will one like that family from a priestly royal line bring muscles and a sword again and overthrow our Roman oppressors, restoring Israel to a proper nation with proper worship of Yahweh? And it was so deep in their paradigm. It was set in their bones. This Messiah, this expectation of he's going to rule in power and overthrow our Roman oppressor. We read this uh, story at Christmas time, or this passage rather, Luke 1, 32 through 33, it's where the angel announces Jesus' birth and he says this, he will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So there's this angel with a prophecy that God was going to send someone from the line of David who would rule and reign like David. And there's this recent history. So you got prophecy and history coupled together and you got this paradigm formed. Well, this Messiah who's gonna come is gonna rule like David with the sword set us free from Rome and conquer so that we can, he can have this eternal kingdom. And in one sense, it blinded them from what God was actually doing. Let's talk about David for a second. 
Because to understand also where they're coming from, they had this expectation of this great king who was like David. And David was known as the greatest king in Israel. To this day, the most honored and greatest reputation king of Israel. You remember Israel coming out into the promised land. They get into the promised land. God was supposed to be their king, but they saw all the other nations around them and they saw the other nations had kings and they said, give us a king like every other nation. So God kind of gives in. He gives them Saul. Saul failed as a king. He failed as a model king because he did not submit to the greater king. And then God says, I'm going to anoint a king and I'm going to anoint a king who's a, a person after my own heart, a man after my own heart. So God anoints David through the prophet Samuel to be king. David, I'm going to give you like, like some highlights of David's life. This is like sports center top 10 of David's life, but I only got nine. So it's top nine. All right. Um, David is anointed king. He's about 15 years old. Samuel comes and anoints him to be king. Several years later, the nation of Israel is at war with the Philistines, which seemed to be a constant thing for them. And Goliath, their champion, is out there, and he is insulting the nation of Israel, insulting their God. And Saul is supposed to be the warrior king who goes and confronts Goliath for this, but he's too scared. So David comes to the, the front of the line, and he doesn't take Saul's armor, and he doesn't take Saul's sword, but he says, how can this person stand against the armies of the living God? So he, with great courage and great faith, takes a sling and a stone, and he goes and he hurls it at the giant and he kills the giant and everybody cheers and they begin to see that, oh, David really has courage and has faith. Wow, what a man of great character. He starts to get popular. David continues to grow in some of his military exploits, which only builds Saul's jealousy. Saul had an affliction. Saul was tormented by an evil spirit, the Bible says. David was a gifted musician, so David was sent to soothe Saul with his music. David was a gifted poet. He wrote many of the Psalms, which we read and pray. David continued to grow in power, and they would sing songs about him, and Saul's jealousy only continued to grow until it turned into a violent jealousy where he tried to murder David. And what did David do? He fled. He hid in caves. He went to different countries. He hid from King Saul. He had several opportunities to kill Saul, to take his life and take his space as the rightful king, but he didn't do it. He said, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. The timing wasn't right, and he didn't take vengeance on Saul. People loved David for this. David finally begins to reign at about 30 years old, and the Philistines have Jerusalem, so he conquers Jerusalem. He freed Israel from their enemies. He gave them rest from their enemies. He set up their borders. You may know this story. He brings the ark of the covenant that God gave to Moses. He brings that into Jerusalem. And in so doing, he takes off his outer garments and he dances before God and before the people. He brings the ark in so they have proper worship. And David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David didn't use his power or authority to lord it over his people. Rather, he served his people because he knew that he was not the ultimate king. He was a lesser king in submission to the greater king. And God says this to David because David wants to build a greater house of worship for God. And God says this in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. 
your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is God's promise to David. This is known as the Davidic covenant that God makes with David. Someone will come from your lineage and I will establish his kingdom and he will build me a house, a family, a people, and I will establish his reign forever. Now, David didn't just have a top 10. He had a not so top 10 that we all probably know about. One day he's on his roof and he sees a beautiful woman bathing naked and he decides that he wants to sleep with her and so he invites her to his room and Bathsheba comes to his room and she likely doesn't refuse because you don't refuse the invitation from the king and they sleep together and he commits adultery. He realizes that she could even become pregnant so he brings her husband Uriah home from the war and he says, hey, why don't you go ahead and sleep with your wife? You've been away, it's been difficult and Uriah says, no, 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 I can't do that. Like all of my men are out on the battlefront, like, well, that would be so selfish of me. So he doesn't do that. So David's like, well, I gotta figure out a new plan now. So he, he sends Joab, the military commander, this little letter, and it says, hey, why don't you put Uriah at the front of the battle, and when the fighting's at its worst, go ahead and pull back so that, you know, he can basically get killed. And Joab does that, and Uriah dies, and then uh, David takes Bathsheba uh, as a wife. It's not a good move. It's not a good look. And from then on, really, we actually see a decline in David as a person. His own son, Absalom, rebels against him and tries to take the kingdom from him. And David can't do anything about it and chooses not to do anything about it. Later on, he's taking a census of his military and whatever the motive was, he wasn't supposed to count all his military. It was either fear, like we've got to make sure that we have power and we've counted our power and that we can handle it. We'll do it in our own hands or with we, or or spiritual pride. Look at this great thing I've built. Whatever it is, we don't exactly know, but it's a great sin against God. So he's trusting in his own faculties and his own resources, not in God's provision. And you see kind of David's life kind of not ending so great. And yet he was still considered a person after God's own heart and one of the greatest kings of Israel. And we look at that and people looked at that and they thought, someone's gonna come who's like David, but better than David. Someone's gonna come who's like David, but stronger than David. And can finish the calling that he was given. Here's the truth about David. David loved God and David was a great leader, but he had limitations. He reminds us of all of our own weaknesses, of all of our own humanity. And this is difficult for us today sometimes. You know, sometimes we, we, we've seen this recently. There's a lot of Christian leaders, a lot of news coming out about Christian leaders and their moral failing or the culture that they build in their certain leadership position or their certain church or the language that they used or what they've done. And I'm in no way condoning the actions that they've done or what they've said or what has happened. But often we have to make a paradigm shift because think about it. What if, what if David was on a headline today? Great church leader commits adultery, has husband set up plans in motion to be killed. Insurrection in his own organization can't put it down. Trusts in self 
and all the kingdom that he's built and not in God. And sometimes we, we look at people around us and we think to ourselves, well, look what they've done with this. I can't learn anything from them. But we go to the Psalms daily and weekly and we pray them and they feed us. And this is a paradigm shift that some people have to make. And it's this, no one is holy one thing. No person is holy one thing. We are not our sexuality. We are not the color of our skin. We are not our tax bracket. We are not our status and our successes. We are certainly not our sins. I think for some people that sets us free this morning. No one is holy one thing. We are much more deep and much more complex than maybe we even know. And the people of God looked at David, warts and all, and the book of Acts even calls David still a man after God's own heart because this is what a person after God's own heart is. A person after God's own heart is not perfect. A person after God's own heart wants to have a heart that is after God's own heart. So you say to yourself, my heart's fallen and broken, but if you want to have a heart that's after God's heart, then you have a heart like David. And they looked at that and they thought, but somebody better, somebody greater has to come. Somebody is still promised who will rule and reign forever. And there's this expectation in this paradigm. Give us freedom from our enemies. Establish proper worship in Jerusalem. God promised, God prophesied. We have prophecy in history. Where is it? And maybe we can start to understand a little bit how difficult of a jump it would be for them to see what God was doing. And this is the truth about Jesus. Jesus comes as a bundle of contradictions and paradoxes to the people. That's why you look and you read the stories and you're like, how do you not get it? How do you not understand? Because he was a walking contradiction and a paradox for many of them. Because the reality is this, Jesus was not what they expected, but greater than they imagined. And he's often not what we expect but greater than we imagine. Jesus presented them with a couple of contradictions and a paradox to try to get them to have a paradigm shift. And the first contradiction is this, Jesus fought a different battle. Jesus fought a different battle. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's supposed to be coming on a war horse with a sword pomp and circumstance. This is the triumphal entry. He's supposed to be on a white horse. This is the king. He's supposed to be carrying his sword and he's gonna rally his people to overthrow Rome. And Jesus comes in on a donkey, kind of embarrassing, don't you think, Jesus? A beast of burden? A beast of peace? Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus was fighting a bigger battle, a bigger battle than one that they could see. They were thinking Caesar. Jesus was thinking Satan. And the truth is this, the battle we fight determines the weapons we use. You see, he didn't bring the sword, he brought a shepherd's staff and he rode a beast of peace, 
symbol of peace, a humble donkey. Who is this king? How is he going to overthrow Rome? He seems so soft. And the battle he was fighting needed different weapons. And the battle we fight determines the weapons we use. That's why the Bible says that we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So if we think the battle is against flesh and blood, if it's against this person or those people or that system or those ideas, then we're going to use those types of weapons to try to attack and to name call and accuse and to undermine And we'll be fighting a very small, unsatisfying battle. And Jesus says, we're fighting a very serious battle, actually, with great eternal consequences. So the weapons are prayer and truth and forgiveness and self-sacrifice and grace and peace. Sometimes those aren't as attractive to us as the weapons we want to quickly grab for. But that just reminds us that we're fighting a deeper and wider battle. Contradiction number two, Jesus came to save the world, not just one nation. Jesus came to save the world, not just one nation. The Israel expectation was you have got to save us from Rome. Rome is in the house. Don't you care? Get them out. And Jesus comes along with this attitude that Rome is in the house, let's invite them to stay. Let's break bread with them. Jesus in Matthew chapter eight actually heals a Roman servant. Shattering people's expectations and paradigms. We often have this expectation that Jesus came to save me and my tribe and my nation. We often have to make a paradigm shift because we think it's something like this. God is on my side. If you're anything like me, sometimes you think, well, I'm right, so God's on my side. Anybody? Don't raise it too high. Here's the reality. God is not on a side. God is the side. And we were invited to be on his side. In 2020, I know you know that year, there was, amidst all the beginning of the tumult and the pandemic, During the calls for justice to be made, there was a letter put together by Harper's Magazine. It came to be known simply as Harper's Letter. And the letter was something like this. In the midst of all of what seemed like uh, political, social, and social media violence and call out and all of that, it was an invitation to keep free speech and open debate with civility alive. It was an invitation to keep free speech, open debate, Civil dialogue alive. This letter went out and over 150 leaders, different ends of the political, cultural spectrum signed it. And then almost immediately, many of them rescinded their signature. Why did they do that? Because they saw who else signed Harper's letter and thought to themselves, well, if you signed this, I'm not gonna sign it. He signed this, she signed this, that professor from this university, that political party, they signed this. I'm not gonna either, A, I'm not gonna be associated with them or I no longer believe in this anymore or that's not gonna work. And that's a, that's a my nation, that's a my tribe mentality. That's a God came to save me and us 
you're the problem. That's a God's on my side. That's a difficult paradigm shift to make. And the people of God understood that when Jesus came because it wasn't just about Israel. Jesus was aiming not to be simply a God on a tribal side, but a God who was aiming for a universal salvation so that all who hear and believe could be a part of his family, even Romans, even Samaritans, even pagans, as they said. And perhaps maybe the most difficult thing for that expectation was the paradox that Jesus presented them on the cross. And it was this, Jesus gains victory through defeat. Jesus gains victory over death, sin, and the devil through losing, through defeat, through subjecting himself to ridicule, to false accusation, to a mock trial, to insults, to blows, to crucifixion. Now we can maybe understand, <laughs> look, look at this king. King? How can a king from the line of David be better than David and die on a cross? He can't because Deuteronomy tells us that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So this surely isn't him. He's cursed by God. And he gains victory through willful, joyful choice to death. And he shows us a completely countercultural way. And he presses up against our current paradigm with this paradox and invites us to make some shifts. No, Jesus was not what they expected, but he was greater than they imagined because unlike David, Jesus actually would resist temptation of the devil for shortcut momentary pleasures. And unlike David, Jesus would not count the power of the angels in his army, but would count the cost and yield his life. And unlike David, when the people had a coronation in mind, he had a cross in mind. And unlike David, he would not put self first, but he would put salvation first because he did not have self in mind. He had us in mind. So you can see what a difficult jump that God is asking his people to make at this time and us. Look at Mark 15, 32. Let the Christ, let the Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we could see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. <laughs> there he is, this great powerful ruler on the cross. My application is simple and brief. It's a question with two answers and then two statements. And my question is this, how do you know you need a paradigm shift? How do you know you need a paradigm shift? My first answer is this, when you're continually frustrated and angry at the same failed expectations of life. When you're continually frustrated and angry that God, that life, that this person, 
that this relationship, that this organization has continued to let you down and you get so angry about it, you become embittered. Remember in their mindset, God failed us. You failed us, God. How else do you know you need a paradigm shift? When you keep trying new strategies for change, but keep getting the same results. When you keep trying new strategies for change, but you keep getting the same results. Oh, I'm gonna try this, and I'm gonna work on this, and I, I'm gonna try to grow, and that's not working, so I'm gonna try this, and I'm gonna try that, and I'm gonna try to grow, and that's not working, and I've tried all these different strategies, but I keep getting the same results. Maybe it's time to expand a paradigm, to let go of some things, to think about things in new ways, to lean into the world in new ways, to reconsider who you think God is, who you think self is, who you think others are. Maybe it's time for a little bit of a retreat or a respite to say, I, I've got to really look at this differently. And Jesus wants us to make these paradigm shifts so that he can truly and fully be our king because King Jesus wants our allegiance. He doesn't want to compete with all the idols that we set up, all the things that we think are going to deeply satisfy us and give us purpose and meaning. And we keep running to those wells and we keep drinking and we keep becoming unsatisfied. He wants to be the only true king in our hearts. And he wants our allegiance. And lastly, King Jesus wants us to follow in his footsteps. He wants us to follow in his footsteps using the weapons that he used for the battle he fought, laying down our life using our strength to serve. And if we think it's gonna be easy, behold the man on the cross. That's what the king does. That's what he wants his followers to do. To spill their lives for the goodness of others. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that we continue to learn who you are and how you work and you continue to surprise us and you continue to challenge us and you continue to invite us to change. And we box you in so many different ways. And you don't always use a hammer, but you might use a whisper. Help us to hear your whispers, the invitations that you have. Father, I pray for us today that we'd be honest about our faith, that we'd be honest about who we are. God, that you would truly give us courage to admit where we might need to grow, to admit our biases, to admit where we thought you were on our side. Father, I pray that you would help us to see you as the suffering servant on the cross, laying down your life, spilling your blood, giving up your body, not just for one person or one people, but for all tribes, all languages, all nations, all races throughout history. And may we be grateful and may we be winsome because of that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.